Good morning, church. Let's hear for the moms. You guys are awesome. Men, I won't judge you for not giving the moms a standing ovation just then, but you want another chance or let's hear it for the moms. Woo! You guys are awesome. We love you. You make it all possible. You matter. We hear you. Moms, it's not easy. You don't have an easy task, but we love you. You're a core part of us. As, as Andrew said, uh, we wouldn't be the same without you. Um, notice my sermon title today. <laughs> Criticism. Ashley calls it mom guilt. I don't know if you've heard that before, but moms are uh, subject to a lot of criticism. And I want you to hear first, first off that we love you. You are uh, enough. You are doing enough. You are doing great. And look around. There's a lot of moms in this room. Young moms, if you, if you have questions or you lack something, there's a lot of grandmas in this room that would love to show you what's up. So let's take advantage of that. And older grandmas, find a young mom that you can pour into and that you can teach how to be a good mom. Because being a mom's heart, it's full of this. And, uh, and being a dad is really fun, right? <laughs> okay, all right. Criticism is the name of the game today. And uh, again, life is full of criticism. You can't, uh, you can't look at any, any mother, let alone any business, restaurant, or all of the above. Even our church probably has reviews on Google. Moms, aren't you glad you don't have that yet? <clears throat> when was the last time you used one of those websites to find out the reviews for a restaurant you were looking up. Earlier today, it's Mother's Day, guys. Hopefully you have reservations somewhere, right? I, I use them all the time, right? Everybody gets to be a critic. Everybody gets to leave a review. I want to make sure that the place that I'm going is good. It's going to be worth my money. I don't want to waste my time going to some half-rate one-star establishment when five stars are available to me, right? Before the websites, though, before everybody could leave a review, there used to be critics. And there still are, fair enough. There are still critics, but they're much less, um, much less relevant now because everybody has an opinion. Right? Theater critics, movie critics, music critics, fine art critics, and of course, food critics. They mattered a lot for the culture. I think of the long, spindly character from Ratatouille who looks like Dracula. Right? These are critics. <clears throat> and for critics, their authority to criticize or praise came from their experience, and their education, or even their participation in that field that they were criticizing. Right? But now, again, everybody can do this. And in some ways, that's a good thing. Right? We want to be able to have our say. We can find out what normal people think about a particular McDonald's location. Right? Great. But really... That's like the pinnacle of human nature. We like to be critics. We like to have that power, don't we? Even if we have no idea what we're talking about, we like to leave a review, especially if it's a low review. That's fun. I saw a review of a local restaurant the other day, uh, a one-star review left because they didn't offer takeout. It was like a fine dining restaurant 
And the owner replied saying, hey, this is like really expensive per plate. We don't offer takeout. But they left a review anyway without having first tried the food. That's where we are, right? Everybody's a critic. And it's easy to become this. And Jesus knew that all too well. He, of course, had many critics. And none of them had the authority, the right authority, to judge him. So what should his followers look like? That's the question. Let's open up to Matthew 7 and read verses 1 through 6 and find out. Stand with me as we read, again, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Please be seated as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to Matthew 7, 1 through 6. We trust you have something to say to us today in your word. So we humbly submit our thoughts and our hearts to you now. Pray that you would help us to concentrate on your word and to understand it. Pray that you would mold our lives around it. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, Jesus turns his attention toward relationships. Relationships between his disciples. He addresses the topic of criticism. Criticism in positive and negative ways. What does good criticism look like and bad criticism? That's his topic today. Now, he's been talking about possessions, right? How we should handle our possessions, our worldly goods, and worship to him, laying up treasures in heaven, and not being worried or anxious about where things will come from, where our needs will be met, because God, who we worship, will provide. So in that conversation about possessions, it was really our relationship to the Lord in everyday life. And now he turns to our relationships with each other in everyday life. We usually think of the word criticism in a negative sense, right? But of course, criticism can be good. We can offer constructive criticism. We can even think critically, which I hope you do today. Criticism is simply the weighing or evaluation of something and its merits. It can be done fairly and generously, or it can be done hypocritically, unfairly, and maliciously. So, how are Jesus' disciples supposed to criticize each other, and how are they supposed to criticize the world? First, disciples should not be judgmental. Excuse my coughing this morning. I'm using this word judgmental as a stand-in for poor criticism. It gets across what Jesus means here in verses 1 through 5. As followers of Christ, we're to put off an attitude of judgmentalism and unfair criticism of others. That's, That's what it is in short. 
Hopefully you can already tell that we're going to be walking a pretty fine line today. What constitutes fair and unfair criticism? How can we slip into judgmentalism? Well, remember all along that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been concerned with the heart, what the heart is doing. In fact, if his disciples were, were listening really, really carefully, if they were listening to the sermon all along, they would have already understood what these verses, verses 1 through 5, were talking about. <clears throat> Jesus has been calling us throughout the sermon to realistic self-evaluation, right? Oh, you think you haven't murdered anyone. Do you hate anyone in your heart? Oh, you think you haven't committed adultery. Have you lusted in your heart? And so on and so forth. We found that we frequently don't keep faith with God like we should. We go back on our word. We pray like pagans and we're stingy with our possessions. If we sat underneath the teaching of Jesus and heard him tell us all of these things in quick succession without this week-long break between each paragraph that we're taking, then by the time we get to these verses, verses 1 through 5, our first thought after we hear them would be, well, of course, who am I to judge? After all of that evaluation, I am in no place to judge someone else. But instead, our typical approach to these verses is something like we've already done this morning, right? Jesus says, judge not. Sure. But he doesn't really mean it, right? We're supposed to judge sometimes, right? In fact, doesn't Jesus call us to judge rightly? After discussing false prophets, Jesus says in verse 20, shortly after this, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So see... We're not being judgmental. We're being fruit inspectors. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're supposed to judge rightly. Excuse me again. And we're going to deal with the question of how to do it right. But that's not the mindset we're supposed to bring into verses 1 through 5. That's not our starting point. Our starting point is the rest of the sermon where we've evaluated ourselves, examined our hearts time and time again, and come up short to God's standard. We come humbly to verses 1 through 5. Verse 20 comes after verses 1 through 5 for a reason. After careful self-evaluation, confession, and repentance, we should be ready to hear the words of Jesus as he says, Judge not. With the right mindset, we immediately understand what Jesus means by judge, right? Consider again the idea of a theater critic. What gives them the authority to judge a play? On what basis can they write a column? Presumably, they have some education, right? Education in that field, good education. They've even seen many, many, many plays. And they may have even been a director or an actor, something like that. They have a special ability to know what is good and bad because of their authority. That's why culture trusts them to tell us what's good. Let's use a biblical example. For our preparation of worship this morning, we read Romans 14, 10 through 12. In the same chapter, Paul says earlier on, 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In Romans 14, Paul is dealing with the hot topic of whether or not Christians should eat meat sacrificed to idols. And this is his answer. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's Paul's answer. His point is that those who are judging, judging their brothers and sisters as they partake, lack the authority to be in that role. They are not the master. God is the master. Only he has the authority to judge. And that's his conclusion in verse 10, which we read. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Turns out, God is the judge. He's the only one qualified. The only one with the authority to be in that role. Which of us, looking back through the Sermon on the Mount, can stand up under the weight of Jesus' words? Who here can say that they can rightly sit in the judgment seat? Who is qualified to be the critic of other Christians? Judge not, that you be not judged. And Jesus continues, For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. So if you're willing to sit in the judgment seat, you better be qualified. Or else the pronouncement you give will also be given to you. Those who are judgmental, have a judgmental attitude, actually lack the competency and authority they claim as they sit in God's judgment seat. They are misguided. They are deluded Deluded into thinking they can sit in the place of God. So taken together, the type of judgmentalism we're talking about is a hypocritical attitude toward others that places you in the seat of God. It's a hypocritical attitude toward others that places you in the seat of God. That's what we mean by judgmentalism. It's a type of criticism that usurps an authority that doesn't belong to you. It's a type of criticism that looks down on other people from a place you shouldn't be. It's sitting in God's seat. Notice the language here of reciprocity. Jesus has used this kind of language all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Right? All the way back in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I'm sure you remember chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And the same kind of idea can be found right here. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's not explicitly stated here, but the one who judges those who judges others is none other than God himself. If you pass, if you do nothing but pass judgment on other people, God will pass the same judgment on you. It's a clear warning. It should scare us a little bit. He gives us 
a picture of a merchant in the market using a certain type of measure in order to charge money for goods. And the same measure that that merchant uses to charge for his goods will be used against him. So is his measure generous? Will you be generous with others? Or will you be harsh and malicious? Will you expect the best of other people first? Or are you hungry to see their faults and failures? Now, God is always just. And we never deserve the grace that we receive from Him. Let me say that again. God is just, and we never receive the grace, deserve to receive the grace we do receive from Him. We never deserve it. But the person who claims to be a Christian and passes judgment on others in this way betrays a heart that's not been touched by God's grace. So the same judgment they pass, the same judgment they pronounce will be pronounced against them. When we, look, when we looked at chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, right after the Lord's Prayer, we talked about the parable of the servant who was forgiven a great debt. Do you remember it? It's relevant here again. The servant who was forgiven a great debt. And he left the king's presence. And he went and demanded payment from his fellow servant a small debt. And the same idea is in place here. If you truly have experienced the grace of God in your life, the forgiveness of all of your sins, the very things that put Jesus on the cross, then how much more should we be generous toward those who we would want to judge? And by generous, of course, I don't mean with money. I mean with love, with understanding, with compassion. If we have been given uncomprehensible love and mercy and grace in our lives, how much more so should we give compassion and mercy to others, even if we want to judge them? The right attitude towards others is a generous spirit. A generous spirit starts by rightly understanding ourselves. We are pretty sinful people. We deserve heavy criticism and judgment. Yet, we've received grace from God instead of condemnation. Can I get a hallelujah? We have received grace from God instead of condemnation. So, why would we be comfortable judging others? Why would we be comfortable judging others? So let's examine our hearts at this point. Are you sitting in God's seat? Does judgmentalism come naturally to you? Do you think of it as being able to understand a person very quickly? It does to me. I find myself getting judgmental very quickly. And I feel like many pastors do. The more theological, biblical knowledge you gain, the more quick you are to judge those who are in a similar position to you but disagree with you on certain theological topics. Knowledge is something that makes you more judgmental. It's a beautiful thing when used correctly, but knowledge can really make a heart judgmental. I'm sure many of you in your professions, if you're an expert, 
You understand what I'm saying. If a plumber knows a lot about plumbing and his rival plumber makes more money than him and he does different techniques, he probably judges him for those techniques. It's a great temptation. We face it all the time. Self-aggrandization and self-justification are easy to slip into, especially if you're convinced and you've convinced yourself that you're just inspecting fruit. In fact, given his way, the devil will quickly turn well-intentioned discretion into self-justifying judgmentalism at the flip of a switch. Gossip and slander are the result of this kind of judgmentalism. It is not constructive. It does not build up. It tears down. And so broken relationships and disunity are the result. So we have to protect against it, right? We have to protect against unfair criticism and judgmentalism in our own lives and in the life of this church. We have to be patient with each other. And you know what helps with that patience? What helps protect is remembering a good word picture. Funny word pictures stick in your mind. And that's what Jesus gives us in verses 3 through 4. Jesus is hilarious. And this is a hilarious word picture that's so common to us we forget how funny it is. So let's just read it again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Jesus brings us right into the carpenter shop that he's familiar with. Two guys are doing their work and one of them notices that the other has this tiny little speck and it's bothering him. He wants to get it out. He wants to help even. And thinking that he is being really helpful, he walks over, probably bashes his head against everything on his way over and because unbeknownst to him he has a huge log sticking out of his face but taking no notice of his horrible problem he offers to get this tiny speck out of his brother's eye and while he's reaching down he probably does more harm than good bumping his beam into his brother's face it's hilarious and it's absurd that's the point Judgmentalism is absurd. The complete ignorance of the first brother to his situation makes the story funny. Imagine a guy walking around with a tree sticking out of his eye socket. But it's tragically true for those who have a judgmental attitude. This guy has a huge beam in his eye and he can't even see it. And in the same way, those who wrongly pass judgment on others as if they're God can't see sin in their own lives. They're blind to it. And blind eye surgeons do more harm than good. So what must be done? Verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So before we hop on our high horse and judge others for their little specks, we have to deal with our sin and our plank first. We're not going to help anyone if we aren't resting in God's grace. We need to develop the discipline of repentance in our lives. 
If you're looking for a practical thing to do today, that's it. The discipline of repentance goes to God every day, the throne of grace to cry out because you're becoming more and more aware of your own sin and you need his grace. Do you have that as a discipline in your life? We have to have good self-evaluation. We have to know the ways the devil tempts us. We have to actually know them and act upon them. And we have to be humble enough to ask for help from others. Okay, so moms, if you deal with a lot of mom guilt, there's a lot of moms in this room that want to help you out. Seek it out. That goes for everybody. If you have a sin in your life, you're not going to be able to handle it quick enough between just you and God. You need brothers and sisters in the faith. You think the guy with the big plank in his face could get it out on his own? If we're going to sit in judgment, and if we're going to desire authority over others, shouldn't we first submit ourselves to those who can help us? Shouldn't we seek desire or seek authority over our lives? brothers and sisters who have a say, who see sin and call it out in you? Isn't that a good thing? Notice how the speck in this parable still needs to be dealt with. The plank is removed, finally, praise God. And then he can clearly see to help his brother with his speck. The speck doesn't belong, but the plank needs to be dealt with first. We are actually called to care about the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And of course, Jesus himself will tell us to exercise church discipline in Matthew 18, to go to a brother with, about his sin against you and to try to restore him, to try to reconcile the relationship, which involves calling out sins. So these verses aren't telling us to let our brothers and sisters fall into sin. They aren't calling us to passivity or license. They're calling us out of judgmentalism and into a realistic self-evaluation Do we let God be the judge? Are we overly concerned? Listen. Are we overly concerned about little things in others? All the while ignoring the big things in our own lives. I think King David is one of the greatest biblical examples, period. We can look at his life and and see a godly man, but... He's a great biblical example of really unfair criticism, too. David had just taken Bathsheba for himself, you remember the story, and had Bathsheba's husband killed on the front lines of a battle David is not at. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him and gives him a report, a report from his kingdom. So he says, this is Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. Talking to David. There were two men in a certain city. 
the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and, and even lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So, a rich man takes a poor man's precious lamb to serve to a guest. It's definitely evil, and the way Nathan presents it tugs on the heartstrings. It's evil and it's unjust. But when we take into account the fact that David is trying to govern a whole country, it's kind of a small thing that would be settled in small claims court, not by a king, right? But notice David's response. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I don't know how the guy is going to restore the lamb fourfold after he dies, but nevertheless, that's where we are. Maybe that's a justified judgment. But David doesn't get it. He's not picking up what Nathan's laying down. Immediately, Nathan says, you're the man. And he goes on to proclaim God's judgment over David. David had this massive plank in his eye that blinded him completely. It wasn't until after he was confronted with his sin that he was willing to deal with it. He would have been content to cover it up, but God wasn't going to let him do that. David was a hypocrite, which is what Jesus calls his disciples here who are judgmental. David is play-acting righteousness. That's what hypocrite means, you'll recall, to play-act righteousness. So do we do the same thing? Are we content with the sin in our lives as we seek out other people's little specks? Jesus doesn't want to have judgmental disciples. He wants his disciples to understand God's grace and their unworthiness. He wants them to be generous with the shortcomings of others. Instead of being judgmental, second, disciples should be discerning. Right on the heels of an exhortation toward generosity and a pronouncement against judgmentalism, Jesus gives his disciples calling to be in discernment. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This may clarify some questions you have about Jesus's desire for us not to be judgmental. Again, Jesus isn't telling his disciples not to use wisdom or judge between things, right? Verses 1 through 5 were an injunction against judgmentalism, not good reasoning or judgment in that sense. And here we have another word picture. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Maybe the most obvious question about this statement is who are the dogs and who are the pigs? Who does Jesus mean? Well, it could be that they're Gentiles. It could be that the dogs and pigs are a stand-in for 
the nations, the Gentiles. Jesus will use a similar word picture when he talks to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this woman is asking for healing. There the dogs are obviously Gentiles. So maybe that's what Jesus is doing here as well. And pigs, of course, could not be eaten by Israel or Israelites, so that would bolster that interpretation. But if we understand verse 6 like that, then Jesus is essentially telling his disciples assembled on the side of a hill not to do anything with Gentiles at all, right? which doesn't fit with what we see in the rest of Scripture. So if it isn't Gentiles that dogs and pigs stand for, then who are the dogs and pigs? That seems like maybe the most immediate interpretation. And that's a harder question than you may think. I don't think we can narrow it down to any people group. In fact, I think Jesus leaves this vague for us on purpose so that we can exercise our wisdom and discernment. And understanding the, the holy food and what the pearls are may help us understand who the dogs and pigs are. Don't give to dogs what is holy. That seems general enough. There are many holy things and many unworthy people. I think that this statement could properly be applied to many things. We can see it applied to dating relationships, how we choose our friends or our business partners or other similar types of relationships. We have holy things to keep from dogs. But maybe the most applicable is this. There are some people who will only treat the gospel of the kingdom of heaven like bad food. Dogs and pigs don't care about holy things or pearls. They want to fill their bellies. And if they don't get what they want, your life could be on the line. Right? We're not talking about domesticated dogs here. We're talking about wild, hungry packs of dogs in the Middle East. And if you think a pig is a nice, gentle animal, let me enlighten you as someone who has learned very quickly in, in Iowa for eight years. A pig will 100% trample you and eat you if given the chance. In the same way, there are some people who have so hardened their heart that to share the good things of the kingdom with them would at best be only an invitation to indifference. Or at worst, an invitation to scoffing, ridicule, and persecution. Now, I think that's incredibly rare. I think those people are incredibly rare. We should not give up on people. We should be generous toward them. And just because someone is a pig toward the gospel today doesn't mean they always will be. Nevertheless, this is a call for us to exercise discernment. Throughout the events of the book of Acts, we see the early church always under threat. Always. They had to exercise a lot of discernment with their pearls. If you evangelized to the wrong person, you could be dragged before the Sanhedrin and executed. Paul used discernment with who he shared the gospel with the entire time, throughout his whole ministry and missionary journeys. In chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch, Paul stops sharing the gospel with the Jews and moves on to the Gentiles because they're abusive toward him. And in chapter 18, Paul and his companions do the same thing in Corinth. 
The horrible truth about the human condition is that we can set our hearts so firmly against the gospel that we're no better than pigs or dogs. It's truly only by the grace of God that any of us are saved at all. So as you evangelize the lost, be generous with the gospel. But don't be ignorant of the fact that some will only spit it back in your face. Notice that I said, as you evangelize. I, I assume you are, that you have pearls to give. Right? This is a risk. Evangelizing the lost is a risk. But we need to exercise spiritually informed discernment. If we fail to do this, we risk getting ourselves hurt. But once again, that's not a license to be judgmental. Like I said, this is a fine line, a very fine line. We need to be discerning, but if we aren't careful, Satan will use that against us to turn our hearts to judgmentalism, and then we won't evangelize at all. We'll start to think nobody will accept the gospel. All are only dogs and pigs. So how do we find the balance? There's an obvious balance here between verses 1 through 5 and verse 6. How do we pull it off? It can only be with the help of the Holy Spirit. It can only be with the help of the Holy Spirit. We have to walk this fine line. We need the Spirit to teach us what is judgmentalism and what is discernment. Because sometimes it gets blurry. We need His help. Some of us need to repent of our judgmentalism. After the sermon would be a great time to do that. The Lord is tugging on your heart that that seems to be an attitude you give into quickly. Repentance is the right response. And some of us need to repent for our lack of discernment. And we need to ask God to give us a greater measure of wisdom. And the good news, as the book of James tells us, is that he will. We should desire to do what the Lord wants us to do, not with a judgmental attitude, but with wisdom and discernment. Amen? Let's ask the Lord now for wisdom, to do his will in the world, that we would be discerning disciples who hunger to further the kingdom of God, but not judgmental. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for teaching us what is judgmentalism and what is discernment. As we critique ourselves and the world, we pray that you would help us to do it wisely, generously, with great discernment. We pray that we would start with our relationships with others at a place of love and compassion and mercy, because we received that from you. Lord, let that be where our heart starts. Let us desire to be compassionate toward others, to speak well of them when they aren't around. But Lord, we pray that you would make us wise as serpents, as your word says. Help us to be a discerning people who know what you want us to do, where you want us to go, that we wouldn't throw holy things before dogs or cast pearls before pigs. But we need your help with this. So Spirit, we pray that you would fill us overflowing and give us that wisdom and discernment. In Jesus' name, amen.